0: Again, excited you're here, whether you're a first-time guest, a member, you're joining us on the podcast today. We begin a brand new series this morning about human freedom, divine justice, and glorious worship. We're calling it simply Exodus. You can turn in your Bible or look on the screen as we begin our look at the book of Exodus over the next several weeks uh, to chapter 1 this morning. It's actually quite a long scripture reading and narrative passage, so sort of get uh, comfortable and dig in here. We've got some selections from chapter 1 and chapter 2. The title of this is actually called The Case for Subversion. All right, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers in all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said it was people. The Israelites had become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor they put they built pithom and ramses as store cities for pharaoh but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so the egyptians came to dread the israelites and worked them ruthlessly they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields in all their harsh labor the egyptians worked them ruthlessly The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, went to live in Midian. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's God's word this morning. It's a great story, isn't it? And you know, we live in a day and age where subversion to rule, subversion to authority, subversion to anything that feels rigid or confining is almost a cultural mandate. You know, you, you feel it in the air, you, you drink it in the water, so to speak, culturally. Our culture imagines that any person of faith or any faith system that has any structure, any conviction within it to be something that's fair game, to be torn down and deconstructed. And the value of subverting all things today is almost unquestioned. Consider this sampling of headlines from this week's online Huffington Post in the faith section. These are the the, the headlines in regards to spirituality and and Christianity. It said, the first one was, Fence sitters and boundary pushers, a postmodern reflection. Now the article doesn't tell you how to be actually on the fence and yet push the boundaries but it sounds like a good title doesn't it all right church where the sidewalk ends obviously a shell silverstein reference but still hinting that church begins basically when you leave it uh the c word why i and other christians resist a label why young adults forget the church to follow jesus a new concept of the trinity for post-trinity faith Basically, the Trinity doesn't exist anymore, but here's what the Trinity means, okay. And finally, the case for Christian agnosticism. You get the point. Our culture values subversion, and somehow we've managed to put faith, and especially the Christian faith, in a box on the one hand, and somehow managed to put thinking and questioning and honest reflection on the other. But if you've come here this morning thinking that, or you're beginning to buy into that, and you're thinking that borderless and boundaryless living and borderless and boundaryless faith structures are the way to go and that somehow orthodox christianity stands in the way of human freedom that only shows you two things about yourself may i suggest number one that you've been subversive to everything except your subversion if you truly subverted everything and truly deconstructed everything then your value of subversion would be deconstructed too But secondly, and more importantly, if you think Christianity stands in the way of clear thinking, cultural revolution, and the progress of human freedom, that really only shows you've never read the book of Exodus. What do I mean? I mean, the book of Exodus, more than any other book in the Bible, is a fundamentally subversive book. It takes everything you've ever thought about what it means to be human, about who God is, about who you are, how power and freedom and justice work, and it permanently and fundamentally undermines those concepts and redefines them. In other words, one look at the book of Exodus may just change everything that you've ever thought about, well, everything. You ask, why is this? Here's why. Why? Because the book of Exodus is really about the gospel, which shows us that the Bible, the God of the Bible, excuse me, is a God who comes not to enslave, but to free to rescue to up in nations and value systems and does so in radically subversive ways both back then and still today so this morning let's look at three ways in which this opening narrative in the book of exodus is subversive to and challenges our lives today so spoiler alert a little bit of warning i'm going to be in your face a little bit okay all right so you grab your spouse's hand or that cute girl next to you say hang on oh wait we met in church awesome great deal uh still pay attention here we go okay number three reasons number one culturally subversive the text is two it's theologically subversive and finally it's personally subversive let's go and begin here number one let's look and see how the book of exodus in this chapter one is culturally subversive we read in verses six seven and eight now joseph and all his brothers in that generation died but the israelites it said kept on multiplying they multiplied greatly they increased in numbers then a new king to whom joseph meant nothing came to power So we we picked up that narrative in verse 6 of chapter 1, which itself continues the story from the book of Genesis, and what it shows us is this, that Abraham's grandson and great-grandsons and their children had relocated to the nation of of Egypt, to avoid starvation in a worldwide famine. The family multiplied, grew some more, and over the course, you've got to catch this, of several centuries, that's the time between verses 6 and 8, a new king came to power in Egypt over the course of several hundred years. That king became threatened by the increase from a minority people group with their own cultural identity. And now verse 14 tells us what the king and his people ultimately did to Abraham's descendants. It says this, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now this is a tricky sentence to translate, but it's gonna, supposed to be getting across a point because the word for labor, the word for service comes from the Hebrew word avad, which simply means Means work, and the word actually appears four times in one sentence. And the narrator is trying to beat you over the head with it. And a literal way of saying the sentence would be this: They made their lives bitter with harsh work in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh work, and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The repetition is supposed to be getting across a point. The Israelites had become slaves, and their freedom was gone. And of course, you know that the main thrust of the narrative in the book of Exodus is that God comes to free and rescue his people. So now let's ask, why though? hmm? Why does he do it? You may think you know. Let's ask, why did God come to rescue them if you've seen the prince of egypt or you grew up watching the 10 commandments every easter like i did when it came on tv you may think you know why in your mind you hear the words of the late great charlton heston don't you saying god rest his soul saying what what did he say let my people go yeah over and over you've heard it you think man if the good chuck said it uh it's got to be true right he said it over and over let my people go but that's actually not what God said through Moses. It's close, but not quite. When you unfold the story and you read why God rescued them, here's what Moses actually said in chapters 5, 6, 7, twice and 8, twice and 9, and once in 10. says, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go. So why? So that they may worship me that they may worship me. Some of you are gasping now, perhaps. You're saying, I never thought that. I never caught that before. Why didn't Charlton Heston say it, you know? Well, he didn't say it because that line was written by people who were products of our 21st century Western culture, of course, 20th century when the movie was made, which we have a different view of human freedom in the Bible, don't we? Our culture says freedom or true freedom is being able to do whatever you want, live however you choose, be whatever you like to be. And if you don't like it, deconstruct it and call it something else, right? We do this all the time. Now, our culture's definition of freedom, while it's in some ways good, in many ways it's culturally, it's socially beneficial, isn't actually, though, as helpful. As the Bible's definition of freedom, because here's why it act, Our culture's definition doesn't go far enough. It's not free enough. And here in the Book of Exodus, God actually subverts our modern definition of freedom. And here is how the book defines it: that true freedom is being able to worship God. Therefore, whatever hinders us from that, or keeps us from that, or prevents us from doing that, is a kind of slavery. A person can be free on the outside, the Bible is telling us, but can be in chains in their soul. See, true freedom is being able to worship God. And this is why God comes, church. This is why God rescues... And the overarching plot line of the book is this, though it's easy to miss, and let me show you what I mean. How many of you this year did uh, you began a Bible reading program for the first time? Anybody here do this? Yeah, a few people did. A couple of years ago we did a big push for this. Every year millions, especially of Americans, do a Bible reading plan and you swear you're gonna read the Bible. From start to finish, and you're laughing because you know how this is going to end. You begin in Genesis, and Genesis is awesome. Man, it's 50 chapters of special effects. Man, stars and planets and battles and miracles and wonders and God speaking and all kinds of stuff. And then you get to Exodus, and you cruise along into the book, and through the first 20 chapters, man, you're thinking, the Bible is great. Then you come to chapter 21. And it's like someone threw the e brake on going 75 miles an hour down I 35. Right. Why? Because you come with all the stuff about priestly garments and making veils and screens and sacrifices. You throw up your hands and you quit. You quit. Why? Because all the action hero stuff is gone, you think. You missed the point, though. And what's the point? The point of the book is that the people of Israel begin the book in slavery, but the book ends in worship the book ends in worship being free can you see from chains is one kind of liberation freedom is not less than that oh but god's saying here it's more than just that as well see overturning despotic rulers is crucial god does that respecting the rights of all people is crucial and just and god does that as well but if you stop there if we stop there at our definition of freedom we haven't gone far enough gone far enough true worship is worshiping God in him alone see God doesn't just say let my people go no let my people go so that they may worship me which means this until you are bowed down in worship and you are ravished and consumed by the presence of the one true God you're still a slave to something slave to something see the book of exodus teaches us that we were built for made for worship of god and that our lives and emotions and our finances and our time and our families are made to be built around him and yes god's heart is for cultural and political and civic freedom but when it comes to you and your life and your heart until everything in your life is centered on him built on him you're not truly free See, if true freedom is what you were made for, built for, wired for, then to live for anything else, to build your life and your happiness on anything else is a kind of slavery. Now, let me ask you, does that grate on you a bit? Does that bother you? Does that go against maybe what you've taught or come to believe? Does it make you uncomfortable? Good, good. The book of Exodus is beginning to do its subversive work. On your heart. You had one definition, God has another. Here's the point Worship of God is not less than singing songs to Him. Oh, but it's so much more. To worship the God, again, means to build your life around Him. And if you're unable to do that at any point, that means the presence of an idol can be detected. Sure, you lied, but let's ask why did you lie? Hmm? Yes, you had sex with someone that you're not married to, but why? You cheated on your taxes, sure. But why? Oh, because underneath, there's some kind of slavery to an idol, maybe of image, of pleasure, romance, greed. Let me just press you one more minute really hard here, so get ready. Let me just say, as a pastor here, my prayer is that God absolutely frustrates and brings to nothing every relationship, activity, thought, and choice you are making that isn't built around him and if you were in your right mind you would pray that in a heartbeat you pray it in a heartbeat and the reason you can't pray that you can't throw up your hands and say oh god destroy everything in my life that's not from you free me from everything i'm doing that's not from you if you can't pray that oh it's because you're in slavery to something else in your heart if building your life around god is what you're built for oh then anything else can you see will in the end only degrade you only degrade you only enslave you only rule over you with cruelty and be a snare and a misery and something you wish you'd never done in the first place the person you're sleeping with who's not your spouse bitterness you think you're entitled to drug you're abusing those things are always proved to be cruel taskmasters you don't control him they control you but god has come can you see to set his people free set his people free. See, God himself, he's the original subversionist. Oh, he beat our culture to the punch thousands of years ago. He's the original deconstructionist. The book of Exodus is about it. Someone who will subvert anything, power structures, rulers, culture, to allow his people to worship. And the place in your heart today where you're wrestling, you're struggling, there's tension. Oh, could it just be that God is moving into your life to allow that friction? to bring up an idol, to set you free from it. Hmm? It just may be. But number two, this brings us to number two. That's not the only subversive element here in the first two chapters of Exodus. The book of Exodus in this narrative is also not just culturally subversive, it's theologically subversive. And it's theologically subversive in two ways. To our temporary feelings, and number two, what we'll call transactional faith in other words this story changes even how we see God and first of all it's subversive to our temporary faith feelings what do I mean I mean this I mean many times you know this you base what you believe about God on whether or not you can feel whether or not he's working in your life right based on what you can see with your own eyes so now let's ask with our eyes on this story where is God in this hmm What's he doing in this part of the story? And the answer is, we can't see him. He's hardly mentioned in the passage. God's name briefly appears in chapter 1. But really, it doesn't talk about him until the end of chapter 2. What does this mean? Oh, think about it. what 's happening here in these first two chapters? Well, in the first two chapters, again, which covers a time span of almost 400 years, the Israelites fall into the hands of a cruel dictator who oppresses them. Then, when his oppression doesn 't stop them from having babies and multiplying, he makes a law which has killed the baby boys, as if of course, their slavery isn 't bad enough, now it 's worse. Because you see, this is really one step towards genocide of the people. If all the baby boys are killed, there 's no one now to help reproduce. And again, where's God? Well, he's briefly mentioned in chapter one as affirming the midwife's decision to stand up to power. But other than that, he's not mentioned at all for essentially centuries of Israel's history. And he's certainly not speaking or Or acting in their darkest moment. He's silent as their lives appear to get worse and worse. And then it does get worse. Because you see the only person who can possibly help them. A man named Moses. He's the only one with even access to Egyptian power. He kills a man and flees to the desert. He's the only hope of their nation. But now he's cut off with no possibility of return. And yet, when we come to the end of chapter 2. What does chapter 2 say? It says the Israelites groaned in their slavery, cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, was concerned about them. What is this doing? See, it's putting us into the Israelites' pain and forcing us to ask the Israelites' question. Where is God? Hmm? So let's ask, where is God now? Maybe in your life, maybe bad things have happened to you. Where is God? Where was he when? My spouse cheated on me. My child died when I was abused, neglected, harmed, forgotten, overlooked. Where was God in those moments? The answer is this. He is working to bring about your deliverance, his people's deliverance, even when you can't see it. See, look, look here. It's beautiful. Every bad and evil thing Pharaoh does actually backfires on him in the end. It's almost comic. It's kind of hilarious. Every wicked thing he does comes back to defeat him. What happens when he subjugates the Israelites to keep them small? What happens They grow, right? They multiply even more. They only become more powerful, influential, and significant. Then what happens when he ups the ante and puts the law into effect that all the baby boys would be killed? It was only because he enacted this law that the person of Moses could be formed. The person Moses could be formed. It was only because that wicked law came down. That one mother was now, out of desperation, forced to put her baby into the Nile water. If Pharaoh had never made the law, that woman would never have put her baby in the water, who just happened to be found by Pharaoh's own daughter, who just happened to take Moses again in after agreeing for him to be nursed and trained and raised in his own culture first, and then just happened to come into the palace of the very man who tried to kill him. By making the law, Pharaoh created the very conditions that brought about his own downfall and the freedom of the slaves. Oh, but it sure didn't look that way on the surface, did it? No, it didn't. Things seemed to be going from bad to worse. But what was happening? Oh, we can see, can't we? See, God was working to deliver his people, though he seemed remote, out of touch, and distant. So now again, with all this in hindsight, let's ask, where was God? Hmm? Where was God? He was working to free his people in the subtlest and most unlikely of ways. Through a plan no one would have believed. No one would have believed if you told them. Let me ask you, do you think God's absent in your life? No, he's not. He's working in ways that you wouldn't believe even if he told you. See, no ear is heard, no eye is seen, no mind is conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, I remember years ago when I was single, it seemed like forever until I was going to get married. I'm sure for Jamie Smith, who's getting married today, it seemed like forever. In reality, though, in my life, it was only six years from the time I became a a Christian. And, you know, it seemed like forever until I was going to get married, which, of course, only reveals my lack of immaturity, uh, excuse me, lack of perspective and immaturity. But when we got married, finally, after those long, A lifetime of six years. (laughs) My early 20s. I remember telling Carrie my only regret of my single life after I became a Christian was that I even worried about getting married. Because when I looked back and I saw the hand of God and how he divinely brought us together, while I kept my eyes and focus on him, I felt a little ashamed at how much I doubted his presence and care and concern for me. I couldn't see God working during those six years. Couldn't feel him working. But he was, wasn't he? That's what Exodus tells us. And secondly, though, Exodus is also subversive to our, what we call transactional, transactional faith. It subverts many times what we think of as faith. How so? Like this. Many times, you may think of faith as something that's purely transactional. Here's how that looks. We put faith in, so God puts deliverance out. We confess the Scriptures in God sends deliverance out. We give in the offering here so God gives us money back somewhere. Now, we should hold on to our faith. We ought to confess the Scriptures. My wife and I do almost daily over our lives and children. You should give financially. And to deny that sometimes God blesses in response to your obedience and behavior would be to go against the rest of Scripture. We should obey God. You ought to live a holy life. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit more as we go. But what about here? Hmm? What about here? What have the Israelites done? What transaction have they made with God? There's none, is there? None. What are they giving God? Nothing. What are they doing for God? Nothing. But what is God doing for them? Everything. He's working to set them free. There's no transactional nature here, is there? They've done nothing to secure God's favor, His blessing. The only seed of faith they can offer is a groaning in his general direction. And yet he's quite literally about to move heaven and earth for them. He's about to overthrow a tyrant for them. He's going to step onto the stage of human history for a people who can't even pray. They can only groan. Let me ask you, you think God only helps those who help themselves? <laughs> I think faith is just transactional. Let me ask you, are the Israelites here helping themselves? Oh, God, no. They can't even save their babies from being killed. Push you a little further. Do you think your mistakes, failures, pain have ruined your life? Made it impossible for God to use you? You think I've got so little to offer him. He can never use me now. Look at Moses. Oh, he kills a man. But the biggest mistake of his life turned to the very thing that made him. He's forced into exile and learned the one thing he could never have learned in Egypt. Humility. Humility. And he goes to the very place where he encounters God and where God speaks to him and revolutionizes his life. What kind of a God is this? Oh, I'll tell you. One who never overlooks your pain, church. One who never counts you out. One who's always working to deliver your soul. One who takes the worst of your life. Can you say amen? And turns it for your good, even when you've got the smallest seed of faith to give him. Listen, I'm so glad God's not obligated by my level of faith Thank you, God. Your covenant with me is not based on my ability to keep and have perfect faith. I don't know about you. My faith many times gets weak and shaken and rattled. If this God were a God like every other God who only blesses with respect to how much you obey him, how good you are, how much faith you have, we would all be in trouble. We'd all be in trouble. But Exodus shows us a God of grace who can and will work with anyone, anyone, you may ask, well, how can he work with me? How can he come into my life? Put it like this He can come into your life, set you free. If you'll see this, number three, that when God comes into your life, he is finally personally subversive. He's going to get underneath your own skin. Let me ask you, by and large, what is your, on the average, what is the average American personal value system today? What do we believe and buy into as a culture? In general, it's this. That you're great only if you're great, right? That the strong and the mighty and the rich and the powerful and the beautiful are all what we should long to be. That celebrities are the most important. Superstars are where we want to get to. There's some buddies. And on the other hand, faith is only for people who are losers or cowards or failures, right? Who can't get a leg up in life. But Exodus shows us this, that God's grace flows towards the weak and the powerless and the vulnerable. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you now, what kind of people are the heroes here in chapters one and two? Who is doing anything good here? Well, first it's who? Shipra and Pua, right? The Egyptian women. They're the for the Hebrew um, women, for the, the, the midwives, these women risk execution. They defy the state in an act of civil disobedience, and God blesses them for it. Then there's Moses' who? Mother sister who worked together brilliantly to save moses's life then there's who pharaoh's daughter a religious outsider whose heart is softened by seeing the baby she doesn't turn him over to authorities did you get the pattern time after time it's the women who are the heroes here and not just any women foreign women religious outsiders poor women young women minority mothers are the heroes of this story where are the men (laughs) There's only two, and God's got to work despite them. First, there's Pharaoh, and scholars, of course, have debated for ages on who this Pharaoh was. Was it this Pharaoh or that Pharaoh? But isn't it stunning? The narrator doesn't give us his name here. He gives us the name of the cities that Israelites built, the names of the midwives. But Pharaoh himself remains nameless. It's a literary device designed to show you how powerless and formless he's going to be when he meets God face to face. And the only other male here is Moses. He grows up angry and impulsive. He almost wrecks the whole thing because he's got, you know, failure of character. The Bible's so beyond progressive god is saving the people through the women the people in that day and age who would have been considered second class citizens lower class people the midwives would have been even the lower class in our culture and showing us how he elevates nobodies and delivers through them yes, Well, what kind of a story is this it's the same kind of story isn't it that happens all throughout the bible the biblical God is the God who works to the powerless and the outsider and those who have no voice this God he's always working with the wrong kind of person isn't he it's never the beautiful daughter it's always the ugly stepsister sorry you know it's never the the, the rich prince oh no it's always the rascally you know uh, unvirtuous sniveling man it's like it's like every fairy tale come true only better you ask well why is God doing this for two reasons. First, to show you that in God's economy, church, nobodies are somebody's. Matter of fact, there are no nobodies in his economy. And if you're here and you felt all your life you're a nobody, that God's overlooked you, this story subverts that and tells you, no, no, you're wrong. If you're serving God, you're in his kingdom, his plan, you're really a somebody. And the reason number one is true is because of number two. Because in the end, while the story may be Talking about Moses. It's really telling us about someone else. Let me ask you does this story remind you of another one in the Bible? Oh, it should. Because centuries later, another powerful, another evil ruler once again has the nation of Israel. Under his thumb. Yet under his very nose, another baby would be born, who would one day grow up to be the liberator of his people. Another liberator born, who grew up also the product of two homes, two cultures, two places, so to speak. And this liberator was also rejected by his people, and without out into the wilderness. To me is God to be anointed by the Spirit and sent back into the nation from which he came, and which he grew. See this story. Oh, it points us, can you see, not to Moses, but to a greater Moses, who also had laid on him the sentence of death, but only because the sentence of death came on him, deliverance came to the people. But unlike Moses, the difference is, whose life was only risked on a river, Jesus Christ gave his life on a cross. Moses was sentenced to death and yet escaped, but for Jesus There was no escape. No daughter's arms to receive him and draw him out. Moses was drawn out of the Nile, but Jesus suffered, can you see, and drowned under the weight of the wrath of God so that our punishment could go to him and his freedom could come to us. And now here's what that means finally. To know God... To become a Christian means to have your own values subverted. It means you say this, God, I can't save myself. I'll never be free without you. My strength is meaningless. Oh, God, be my deliverer. See, who are you in this passage? Are you Moses? Is that how you read the Bible? And I hope not. You and I are the children of Israel in bondage. Our only hope is for a deliverer to come. And his power and grace can be yours now if you'll receive it in Jesus' name. Let's pray as we close.